Our place of residence is going to be in John chapter 6 as we continue our study in this uh, wonderful gospel account here. Uh, our subject is power and faith, as mentioned a little bit earlier. And when I mention power and faith, I'm talking about God's power and our faith that happens to be in it. You know, one of the characteristics about the Gospel of John, if you haven't already noticed it, is that it's a running testimony to the enablement of God. Uh, Jesus was able, for instance, to knit together a dynamic group of disciples from the frayed threads of local fishermen, tax collectors, and political insurrectionists. So that's the motley crew that Jesus was working with during his time here on earth. They would be the ones that would take over the ministry for him. Jesus also, as we learned earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, created 100 gallons of wine out of tap water. That was another miracle. He healed a, a man who had been crippled for 38 years, still another miracle. And in our passage today, he feeds a multitude of people with one little sack lunch, which is yet another miracle. There's part of a poem that reads this, like this. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does things others cannot do. And so my thoughts today would be directed at everyone, but mainly those of you who right now have a few uncrossable rivers, maybe a few untunneled mountains. Uh, God, uh, God is with you. Just even when we have circumstances that just seem impossible. It may be a physical infirmity, Maybe a family problem, maybe a financial setback or a relational pain happens all the time. I pray that God will kind of use our verses today to help us and encourage us a little bit in providing us comfort and really cause us to look to him as the, you know, just in the midst of the enduring battle. Now, this is the only miracle that, uh, is of Jesus that he, we know that he performed, probably, you know, tons of others besides what's recorded in the Scripture. But this is the only miracle that he performed that's recorded in all four of the Gospel accounts, which lets us know that when God uh, tries to say something to us on four different occasions, he wants us to uh, take note of that and... Uh, uh, get the message that he wants to get across. And verse 1 begins with a little phrase, after these things. And so we ask the question, well, after what things? Well, at this point in time, Jesus has been in his ministry, his public ministry, for two years. Uh, he has laid aside the leather carpentry belt, uh, kissed his mom goodbye, shook hands with his dad, said farewell to his siblings, and then he launched into a ministry. He went down to the River Jordan, was baptized by John, and then he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting, being tempted by Satan. And it was at that particular point when he did not yield to the temptation that he was revealed 
to the world. They knew that he was the son of God and the one who came for the remission of sin. So it, uh, he really began his, his, well, he's engaging in ministry. In verse 1, it says they're returning from an arduous experience of preaching Christ in the villages. Now, understand, it was a difficult time for the disciples. They were exhausted. They were emotionally worn. They were badly in need of rest. They were happy to get away from the business of people more than anything else. Now, let's, let me read a little bit here. Chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And let me just pause for a moment. Do you remember the Passover? It was really goes back 1,500 years for the very first Passover when Israel was enslaved in the nation of Egypt. They were brought in by Joseph when he was sold into slavery because there was a famine in Canaan and they came down and settled in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. And they survived and they grew and they developed and multiplied and so forth. And there was a 400,000 of them by the time there. This was a chosen nation that was down in Egypt. And God put his hand on Moses and said, I want you to take them to the land that I want to give you, the promised land. And Moses didn't want to do it. He was kind of a reluctant at the front end. But God said, you're the man. Uh, The problem is Pharaoh didn't want to let him go, and so God had to persuade Pharaoh by sending those 10 steps of divine persuasion, which were in the form of plagues and all these other things. But the last last stage, the 10th stage, was the death of the firstborn. God, the death angel, was going to go over Egypt and take the, the firstborn, and he was going to die of every single home. But those believing Jews who celebrated and ate the the lamb and sprinkled the blood on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over those homes that were covered in the blood. And the Jews have celebrated the Passover every year since that time, 3,500 years ago during that time. But anyway, back to the reading again. Jesus, lifting up his eyes, saw a great multitude was coming to him and said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? Now, great opportunities are often disguised as unsolvable problems. Now, the disciples, again, were very desperate to be alone, but the appearance of the curiosity seekers, seekers, I should say, sinkers as well, seekers, (laughs) is going to take precedence. Now, from a human perspective, again, the weary fisherman could not see anything but this swelling sea of humanity just threatening to wash over them. And we're told in verse 10 that uh, there were 5,000 men apart from women and children. So we don't know that there there could have been up to 10, 15, 20,000 people there that were following and wondering about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from a human perspective, 
You know, the disciples wondered, what in the world are we going to do? But from a divine perspective, Jesus saw the crowd not as an infringement, but as an opportunity to reveal his power and develop the faith of his disciples. And so Jesus gives them a little test. It's kind of the dreaded theological pop quiz. Only it's not going to be written, it's going to be oral on this occasion. And so Jesus scans the face of his 12, and he lands on Philip. And he says to Philip, where in the world are we going to buy bread that these may eat? Now the Lord asked Philip, but of course he was testing the faith of all of the different disciples. For Jesus knew what he was intending to do, and he always does. But he doesn't just put us in a cosmic time machine and catapult us to the end. He lets us go through the process, enduring the experience, and developing our trust in him. He worked that way back then, and he works that way even today in your life and in my life as well. Well, anyway, with computer-like speed, Philip analyzes the situation and then gives Jesus a spreadsheet-type answer. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for anybody to even have a little. Now, I suspect Jesus looked at Philip at that particular time and said, Philip, that wasn't really the question I asked you. Uh, I asked you where, and you told me how much. And by the way, a denarius at that time was a, a day's wage for a common laborer. And Philip says, even if we had 10 months of wages at our disposal, we couldn't give them a crumb of bread and a cup of tea. And so like a corporate attorney, Philip is quick to get to the bottom line in terms of dollars and cents. But his balance sheet, however, does not reflect the wealth of the Lord Jesus Christ who was with him. So Philip fails the exam, and he scored in three different areas. First, he sees only the situation and not the solution, uh, even though he was talking to the solution. Uh, second, he's more concerned about the odds against him uh, rather than the person for him. And third, he calculates only for the minimum. They can only have, receive a little. Now, in short, my Lord, he says, there's no way we can pull this thing off. Now, the late Merrill Tinney, who was a professor, I believe, at Wheaton College for quite a while, he calls Philip the statistical pessimist. Uh, little, you know, may, maybe you happen to be a Philip, Philip-type individual. Uh, you know, a lot of us kind of resemble some of these characters in the Bible, and I'm sure many of you are, are like Philip. You know, do you have to see something, for instance, in order to believe it? Maybe a little pressure comes, and you can't figure it out with your moxie, with your intellect, with your bank account. You begin to panic a little bit. And you cry out, man, I've got money problems, therefore God's not interested in my finances. Or I'm without a job, therefore God's not interested in meeting my needs. 
Or I'm lonely, therefore God's not interested in providing for my happiness. Or I'm struggling with my children, therefore God's not interested in my family life. You see, those of us in this group here who are Phillips today, uh, we forget at times that with God nothing is too difficult. All Jesus wanted Philip to do was consider the source of all bounty. Lord, I have no idea where we're going to get adequate food in order to feed this mob right now. It's impossible for me, but it's nothing for you, so I'm going to sit back and wait for you to do what you ought to do. Now, while Philip is busy burning out the batteries of his little iPhone calculator there, Andrew is scurrying amongst the crowd looking for groceries. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, um, by the way, Andrew lived in the shadow of his more famous relative, he came up to Jesus and said, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. You know, I've always wondered how Andrew knew that. You know, he obviously must have had his nose in that little guy's bag in some fashion. But anyway, he, he uh, brings it up to the Lord. And if he would have just given it to the Lord and stopped right there, it would have been perfect. But in the middle of the verse, Andrew blows it by adding, but what, what is this? For so many people. And he volunteers information that wasn't requested. And you might notice in the passage the Lord doesn't even answer it. This is applicable for the Andrews who are here. Maybe you're not a Philip. Maybe you're an Andrew today. Hardworking, diligent, perhaps over-impressed with the odds against you. You know, you hear about all of the needs that are going on in the world, and we certainly heard some the needs that are going on in Japan today. You hear about these needs, and you, you know, you, all of the unreached people that, that, that need to hear the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you tuck your little ones into bed, and you say, Lord, they belong to you. I've, I've pointed them to you. I've led them to you. But I think about all of the needs in the world, and, uh, you know, I'm just destroyed by the, 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 the people that haven't heard at this particular time. You know, what is this amongst so many needs that are out there? Maybe you don't have a large income, but you write out a sacrificial check each month and you give it to the Lord's work and, you, and then you calculate, you know, what, what good is this when there's just so many needs out there, so many lost people? You work diligently, but your discretionary time is limited. And so you fulfill just one little ministry opportunity, but you do it faithfully. And you think, Lord, this just isn't very much. You know, some of you who are students, you work hard in school and you pull decent grades. 
but they're not up to the marks of some of your friends. And you get discouraged about that. And you say, God, how are you going to use me in this sophisticated culture when I'm competing against so many smart and brilliant people? See, I, I happen to be an Andrew. I'm not a Philip. I, I'm an Andrew. You know, I grew up in a modest home. I was shy, carried a measure of self-doubt. You know, when I compared myself especially to people that were more popular, had more going for them than I did, at least in my own mind during that time, you know, my grades uh, weren't all that great in high school or in college or in seminary. I did pretty well in class. I didn't mind uh, uh, certain things that were happening. But uh, interestingly enough, my worst grades in high school and in college and at Dallas Seminary were, were in speech, uh, talking to other people in a public fashion. I mean, I love the research. I just hated standing up in front of a group of people <laughs> and talking to them in some sort of a fluent way if I possibly could do that. I mean, I used to get cotton mouth and I couldn't do anything. And your voluntary presence here today to listen to me talk to you is a sign that God has a sense of humor, <laughs> irrefutably so much so. You know, we who are Andrews today need to remember that a little is a lot when God is in it. You know, if I give the Lord and if you give the Lord the ridiculous, he'll take it and turn it into the miraculous. And maybe you don't have a lot. You know, but that tiny lunch was all that little guy had. That's all that Andrew could find. And ironically enough, that's all the Lord needed. And so in quiet, unobtrusive fashion, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And he was addressing this to his disciples. You see, they were going to carry out the miracle as ushers. And he gave thanks, and then our Lord did a miracle. Uh, you see, look at the last line in verse 11. It says, Jesus gave them as much as they wanted. Do you remember, Philip? Lord, they can't even have a little bit. Remember Andrew? Lord, what is this among so many needs? And while Philip and Andrew were scratching their heads in amazement, there was a little guy running around who had his lunch opened up by Andrew that had a big Cheshire grin on his face, seeing what God was doing with his little lunch. You see, God did the impossible, but he went way beyond that to all more than we could ever ask or think. And that's the way God wants to work. He wants to do that in your life. He wants to do that in my life. And at times there's going to be exhibitions of that. We're going to say, oh my goodness, that could not happen other than God himself. Verse 12. And when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. How many baskets? 12. How many disciples? 12. How many guilty? 12. 12. So the river was crossed. The mountain was tumbled. And what's the lesson that comes out of a passage like this? Well, one of the things that we notice, when you're facing an impossible situation, you leave it in the hands of a specialist. Refuse to calculate, refuse to doubt, refuse to worry, refuse to encourage your wife to worry, refuse to just absolutely refuse. You simply say, Lord, I am carrying around something that I cannot handle. It's beyond my power, it's beyond my wisdom, but it is not too difficult for you, so I am just going to rest and by faith claim your strength and your comfort in the midst of whatever trial or circumstance I have to be going through right now. Uh, Let's say that you had a watch, okay, and your watch stopped working. Got a watch? You can let me borrow that, can you? Thank you, Jerry. Yeah. My Apple Watch. <laughs> well, it's an Apple Watch. I'll go ahead and... No. <laughs> okay, uh, I can't understand it, so it must be a, a, a really uh, cheap Apple Watch. But <laughs> Let's pretend for just a moment that this thing uh, was a $50,000 diamond-studded Rolex, okay? Let's just pretend. It's a reach for that, but anyway, nevertheless, let's pretend it's a, a Rolex. And let's say that uh, your Rolex watch quits working. So what do you do? Well, you take it off, you go out in your garage, you get a wood chisel, you pry off the back a little bit, and you look in there, and you see a little battery and a few little things, and you work on it for about an hour, and you can't get it working, and so you take all of the parts together, put them in a pile, scrape them up, put them in the back of the watch, put the cap on it, and then take it to a jeweler. And you hand the jeweler to your watch to say, hey, my watch stopped working today. Well, so, you know, it's just, this is a nice watch. Let me see what I can do with it. And so he pries open the back of the watch, and he looks at you, and he says, what did you do... <laughs> with this watch. And here's the problem. Oftentimes, when we really need the Lord at the front end, we end up going through some difficult times and give him all the leftovers. You know, why not, why not take the problems immediately to the Lord? Why, why tie everything into 19 complex knots and then give it to him? Give it to him up front. Very nice watch, by the way. <laughs> give it to the Lord right up front. You know, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary. His name was Howard Hendricks. He was a magician in the classroom. But he told an interesting kind of human interest story uh, that took place in the city of Dallas. There was an individual, that a father who had a number of children who 
I felt called of God to leave the business world and enter into um, uh, a life of ministry and uh, become a pastor. And it was going to be, you know, a sizable cut to his salary. And with the size family that he had, he uh, wasn't sure how he was going to make ends meet completely, but he was going to trust the Lord. And so they did that, and uh, the family kept together. And uh, there was a number of children, a number of kids, boys and girls in his family. But the youngest one was a guy named Timothy. And uh, Timothy, right at the dinner time when everybody was gathered around the table, said, you know, I would like to pray that God would give me a new shirt. So the mom says, okay, let's pray for Tim's new shirt. And so Timothy said, well, let's make it a size 7 shirt. Okay, so they prayed for a size 7 shirt, and they did it for four or five nights. And then the mother got a call from a family friend who worked at a clothing store, and they were having a closeout. And uh, the fellow said to the mom, listen, we've got some boys' shirts left over that uh, we're going to get rid of, wondering if you could use them. And she said, well, what size are they? And he says, well, sir, size seven. And she says, well, yeah. And so he said, well, there's 12 of them. And so anyway, he brought them on over. And the mother took them upstairs and kind of hid them. And that night for dinner, when Timmy reminded everybody to pray for a size seven shirt, uh, mother said, we don't need to pray anymore. Because God has answered your prayer. And so she sent the, one of the older siblings upstairs and he got one shirt. Brought it downstairs, put it in front of Timothy and his eyes lit up like big saucers. And then he went up and got another shirt. Brought it back down. And he was stunned. And they repeated that ten more times. Timothy thought... God had gone into the shirt business, you know. <laughs> and there's a, he's a man now, but there was a little boy back then in the city of Dallas that knew God could deal with the $50,000 Rolex situation because God could meet the need for a size 7 shirt. And so I would ask, what's your situation today? Maybe your, your marriage has hit a difficult patch. They all do. It always happens. Maybe a, a destroyed romance has left you disillusioned. Maybe a, a bad habit that you just haven't been able to conquer. Or maybe a strained relationship that's just clawing the soul inside you. Psalm 55 verse 22 says this, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. And the term burden means this, literally. What God has given you. That's what a burden is. What God has given you. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He gives you burdens. He gives me burdens in order to stretch us, in order to toughen us, in order to develop us. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, 
It says, God waits anxiously that he may show us his grace and mercy. And I've discovered in my seven decades of life that it's not so much how great the pressure is, but uh, where that pressure lies. Does it become a wedge between you and your Lord, or is it a magnet that draws you closer to him? Uh, He is our blessed Savior. He is the one who has already done the hard part. He's gone to the cross. He's redeemed you. He's brought you into his family. If he's done the hard part, all of the little things, the contingencies, and all of the needs that we have, he's concerned about those as well. He was teaching his disciples simply a basis of trust. Can you trust me in the midst of it? You know, will you look up? Will the first thing that you do look up when you can't, when you can't figure it out, when you know you can't solve it? And if it takes a period of time, it's because there's an endurance lesson that's there, and it's okay. You'll be okay. And so that's what Jesus uses all of these little things to teach his disciples and at the same time we get to kind of boot off of that kind of conversation and love and uh, that he has for them for us as well as we live for the glory of the Lord itself. Will you uh, bow with me in prayer? Father we thank you for this morning and we uh, for all that uh, took place we thank you that uh, Things can be looking up for the one that uh, fell and failed and fainted. And I pray, Father, that um, you'll continue to look out over her. I pray, Father, that uh, this uh, wonderful missionary family that will be headed off to Japan will uh, go with uh, adequate resources, uh, giving glory and grace to you for uh, what you're going to do through them in many ways and reach the children in Japan for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for uh, the generosity of this fellowship here, uh, going beyond the borders of this uh, room and uh, the needs of ourselves in here, but reaching out across the world, blessing people who know nothing about it in many ways. And so... Thank you, and keep us faithful and loving to you. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling with issues, be it health or relational or uh, discouragement, whatever it might be, Father, we thank you that you are thoroughly adequate for all. In Christ's name, amen.